0: Today on Radical Personal Finance, I have a special treat for you, a joint show with my friend David Stein, who is the host of the excellent personal finance and investing podcast called Money for the Rest of Us. Back in episode 466 in June of 2017, I recorded an episode called The USA's Long-Term Fiscal Gap and Why It Matters to You. America's Fiscal Insolvency and Its Generational Consequences. And I read an essay by Professor Lawrence Kotlikoff. I believe I read his testimony that he presented to the U.S. Congress on the subject of what is referred to as the unfunded liabilities of the U.S. government. Unfunded liabilities are those promises that have been made to citizens of promises of benefits, but promises that have not been paid for, nor has money been allocated to those benefits. Well, after I published that show, I received an email from David, and he wrote to me, and he said, Joshua, I think you're wrong about this. And we intended to get together and and record it, but I pulled off during the fourth quarter of 2017 and the first quarter of 2018. I pulled back from doing a bunch of interviews and we didn't get it done until now, uh, where I recently got together with him to debate this subject. So the audio you're about to hear is David and me sitting down and trying to figure out who's right. And I think you'll hear uh, the challenge of that, <laughs> David is a, a really knowledgeable guy. He worked for many years as an institutional investor uh, and now, of course, as a, is his own private investor. And then he teaches investing on his podcast, Money for the Rest of Us. And I would say that the two of us would represent a fairly mainstream perspective in our experience. He came from the world of institutional investment advice. I came from the world of personal financial planning and personal investment advice. But both of us were involved in fairly mainstream approaches to investing. But yet both of us are trying to figure out the answers to these difficult questions, as is anybody who's involved in the world of investing, which is, sadly or appropriately, all of us. And so I hope you enjoy this discussion as we try to wrestle through Some of these issues. This show does not have a lot of facts and figures. We chose to focus on the simple audio discussion, but I still think it can serve you. You'll hear this audio in a couple different parts. Uh, David's show is usually about thirty minutes long, and so we were trying very hard to fit that uh, that time constraint for his show. But I was still frustrated at the end of thirty minutes that I didn't feel like we'd arrived at an answer. So, uh, how could an episode of Radical Personal Finance be only thirty minutes, especially an interview? So I. I I finished the show, and then I said, David, we got to get to the bottom of this, and, and thus you'll hear the difference in the audio. So enjoy this conversation between me and my friend, David Stein. David Stein, welcome back to Radical Personal Finance. It's good to be here. So a number of months ago, I recorded a show talking about the future of basically the U.S. government economic situation, the fiscal situation. And in that show, I talked extensively about Lawrence Kotlikoff's discussion of the unfunded liabilities of the U.S. government. And I started the process of declaring my position on the unsustainability of current U.S. government and fiscal policies. It's my personal opinion that the U.S. government and uh, the U.S. American culture is effectively bankrupt. that the process of that bankruptcy will proceed forward over the coming decades. I don't know a time, but it'll take over the coming decades. We'll see that bankruptcy um, more and more become apparent, the great default, as some people have termed it. Now, after that show, you emailed me and you said, Joshua, I don't agree with you. (laughs) And in that email, you said, let's talk about it. So here we are, months too late, but we're finally getting back to talking about it. So what I thought would be fun is let me, in short, describe my understanding. And I want to keep today's show free of a lot of numbers and detail. That's better discussed in writing. But I'll very briefly describe my position. And then I want to hear your position and and hear what you uh, believe and don't believe. It seems to me that if I do an analysis of the last century of U.S.-American spending and government policy, it seems like we have made commitments on the level of government that we will never be able to keep. Most importantly, Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security – or I guess I should reverse that that order – Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security are effectively bankrupt. They don't have enough money to cash the promises that they have made. And so over the coming decades, I expect those to be uh, over time defaulted on in a myriad of ways. And I look at the political situation in the United States, and I see no possibility. I see no political impetus. I see no one who's standing and saying, let's stop borrowing money. Let's pay our bills. Let's actually balance our budget. Let's actually figure out how to run on the money that we take in. Let's figure out how to adjust taxes and revenue so they're at least equal, let alone pay off debt. What do you think?
1: Well, I think it it gets back to what is money. In other words, it, a lot of the analogies, the US is like a business or a household. So it has constraints. Right. But it doesn't. The, the government's money, essentially, it's magic money. Money is digital. Right. And so when we look at what happens when the government spends, it's not doesn't have to sit there and wait for this money to show up. And so when you go back to what Kotlikoff in his generational accounting, he's looking at all these promised payments and he discounts them into today's dollars, and he looks at the potential tax revenue right. and discounts it today's dollar, and there's this huge fiscal gap. Right. But the U.S. government has run a deficit basically forever right. since it's been, been around. And if think about it in terms of, of monopoly money. If it was just monopoly money, we wouldn't have these things. So while I might agree with you that there's some fundamental decline in the, in the US government. Mm-hmm. I don't think there's not a fiscal constraint. And we have examples of that. We have we have Japan that has much greater debt to GDP than the US. But what do you have happening? You have the Japanese Central Bank effectively buying that national debt. They now own 40%. They've bought it out of money they created out of thin air. The con- but that doesn't mean there's no constraints. And, and that's, that's where I think it's, it's the key. It's not that the government can spend as much as it wants, because the wealth of a country is the ability of the private sector to produce and goods and services that we can eat. And so if a government like Venezuela is spending ridiculous amounts of money and buying off its population, yet has destroyed the private sector, then you have massive inflation because you have essentially a collapsing economy, there's not enough food, the government's spending money, and you have hyperinflation. But in in an economy like the US, where you have a a robust private sector, and our deficits are are small relative to the size of the economy, we can continue indefinitely like we've, we've been doing and have done for centuries. And it's not gonna be a collapse based on accounting. If there's going to be a collapse, it's going to be based on a a morally
0: bankrupt government that doesn't
1: follow the rule of law.
0: So interestingly, I just have been reading, uh, I'm late to the party, I've been aware of it for a time, but I've just been reading David Stockman's book, The Great Deformation. Are you familiar with that book or ever read it? I am, and I don't necessarily agree with him either. Right. So I I know a lot of people, he's a very, uh, of course, divisive figure. But well, I,
1: I've not read the book. Right, I've, re- I've right. read reviews. I, only, I might have started it, and, and
0: I'm only part way into it. But it's in something I've been really grappling with this question, and he lays out a very strong case that uh, in the 2008 financial collapse, that the moral connection between the natural free market system and the government getting involved, that that moral connection was broken, and he makes a very strong case that all of the governmental in intervention was unnecessary now i also read the official u.s uh, report from that was issued by the the inquiry into the financial collapse and of course they would disagree with one another so the moral dimension is one thing but but let's let's stick with the finance with the fis- when i
1: agree i well let me i go ahead i don't think the government should have intervened right okay how they do so we're agreed i on don't that. necessarily agree that the federal reserve should be creating money right. as part of the quantitative easing program. I don't think that was necessary.
0: But that's separate from the fact that they can. Right. So I think we ha- I have to acknowledge, and I want to acknowledge, that for all of the talk of doomsday and collapse that we've seen people talk about for decades, <laughs> it hasn't happened yet. So those who say it's inevitable have to reconcile – Well, it hasn't happened yet. And lots of people have said it was inevitable long ago. But do you think there is a limit with regard to deficit spending? Do you think there is a limit? And if there is, what would it be? Because after I recorded that show, I had an, a, a listener who seemed very well informed write to me and said, "Joshua, you're wrong, and you're wrong because you think that there's a limit, and we've proven that there effectively is no limit on government spending. And what you need to do is read this, 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 which demonstrate that there's no limit. The government continue to do this because, as you say, the government controls the monetary supply. They can print more money. They can always satisfy their obligations because there is no effectively no limit. So do- the, the, no, the, and the limit
1: is the ability of the private sector to produce you're seeing venezuela as a country where they've met their limit they, they they have impeded the ability of farmers to grow crops they don't have enough food right and it didn't matter that the, the government can create money out of thin air it can create cryptocurrencies right because there isn't enough to eat and so that's the fundamental limit where there's not a limit and, and oftentimes people you'll see articles with that don't understand how the the monetary system works will say well our grandchildren are going to have to pay for this debt that we've incurred now think about that has anybody come to you from your great great grandparents asking for the debt that the government took on
0: in the beginning of the century it's say- just I would say yes, but in this way, that uh, a significant portion of the federal expenditure—I don't have the number in front of me, but I would say, what, 15, 20 percent of the federal expenditure is currently spent on interest—no, it would be less than that—interest on the federal debt, right? And that debt has accumulated since World War II, that, so we are still currently paying interest. Oh, in well, yeah, that, we pay
1: interest on it, right. but nobody's collected it, because what is government debt? It's, it's assets of most of us. In other words, that interest flows right back into the economy and it becomes income. And these are you always have to look at who's on the other side of the balance sheet. Right. Government debt are household assets. And and what is creating that debt each year? Because one of the things people talk about we need to have a balanced budget. Right. Well, the government can set what they want to spend. They really don't have control over the revenue because that is determined by the decisions of households and businesses how much they want to save and let me let me just give a brief example just just think of if if businesses and households decide that they want to save more that means they spend less and if they spend less then they're buying less from other households and businesses which means their income drops which ultimately means that there's less tax revenue because if if businesses if people are trying to save more and businesses are trying to save more by spending less, then other businesses aren't going to have as much income. People aren't going to have many jobs, so there'll be less tax revenue. And that naturally puts the government into a deficit position. Even if the budget was balanced at the beginning of the year, we're going to spend whatever, $5 trillion here, and we hope to get $5 trillion in revenue. As soon as the household and business sector decide they don't want to spend as much, then the revenue drops the tax revenue. And that's why we naturally have bigger deficits during times of recession because of unemployment benefits. But it's 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 ultimately the fiscal situation of the federal government is determined by households and businesses, assuming that the government isn't out of control in terms of its spending. I mean, there has to be some basic understanding as
0: we're not going to be like Venezuela,
1: <laughs> right? And if we don't have that, then, then, yeah, then we're in trouble.
0: Well, and I, I, I used to have optimism uh, that uh, perhaps somebody, especially the Republicans, who ran on the idea that we're going to be fiscally constrained, I used to have optimism that the Republicans might follow through at some point. But with this recent, I what would, I would term a boondoggle, with this recent boondoggle of. Uh, tax bill a few months ago and spending bill that was passed by Republican-controlled Congress and Senate and signed by a Republican president, I have lost any optimism that there's any serious politician, with the exception of maybe Rand Paul, who who, who staged some theatrical objections. But it seems like there's almost nobody who actually stands for fiscal constraint. Uh, so I've lost that optimism. But let me go back. Let's, let's talk about coffee. Well, co- hang go on, ahead, on go ahead. But, uh, I don't...
1: Yes, but I don't think they're out of control. In other words, we could run a three to four percent deficit to GDP indefinitely. We've done it, and it, it's just—it's been done. And that—and it goes back to showing when is the collapse going to occur from a, from a fiscal standpoint. Japan has twice as much debt to GDP as the U.S. So two hundred and forty percent debt to GDP. We're about hundred and three percent. And Japan is doing just fine and isn't, doesn't have issues with inflation because their population is shrinking. And so, again, the, the constraint is, is there enough people to produce the goods and services? And it, it'll be interesting to see because Japan will, will get into trouble way, way sooner than the U.S. If there is a constraint, Japan is going to get in trouble. But right now, it's just not there.
0: Okay. So here's the point, though. The numbers that you're referencing are— On book liabilities, the official federal debt as is calculated, which is what, 20 trillion ish? About 20 trillion. Whereas what Kotlikoff's point is, is the unfunded liabilities, which in his estimation, depending on the year of his work, range anywhere from 180 to 200 trillion dollars. And what he's describing there is the commitments, the promises that are made uh, to the recipients of Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security that are not accounted for in official on-budget mm-hmm. debt. And and so here's where, in my guess, after I've spent about a decade kind of thinking about this. And a decade ago, when I started to think about it, I said I, – I, I had this impression that, well, one day the federal government is just going to run out of money and they're not going to – that's not possible – unless you have a society in anarchy, because the power behind the U.S. dollar as a made-up currency without any fundamental connection to anything constraining, the power is the taxing authority of the entity and of the state behind it and the state's ability to use force to enforce their taxation. And so on that basis the us government can always write any number of checks that they want because they have the monopoly or the majority of force and so they can force tax revenue and they can just write checks but the problem is what are those checks worth when they actually get there and so i don't i don't see any any way that all of a sudden that he, you know all of the hoopla over uh, government shutdowns notwithstanding which is just in my mind political theater uh I don't think that at some point in time you just stop that – the, that the U.S. government stops writing checks. But I do think that the value of what is promised continually constricts. And it goes back to the world of financial planning. What did I tell when I was working as a financial planner? What did I tell all of my younger clients? And it was, it was just a standard in the world of professional financial planning. Don't plan on Social Security. Now, that's just the tip of the iceberg because Social Security is one of the healthier ones. When you go to Medicare and Medicaid and you look at, at the, the numbers that are required, there's no way that, that I don't see any way that those promises can be fulfilled, and that's what I refer to as default. Well, and, and that, again, that's, that's the first off, my issue with
1: Kotlikoff is it takes everything from the future and puts it in the, pres- in the present. We do this year by year so five years from now when it comes to social security and medicare the government can create the money i think we we at least agree on that i agree the issue is will it be any doctors or hospitals to service the retirees that are sick and and that's the constraint if if they've created money and there's not enough doctors because everybody's retired then we're going to have inflation but through advances in artificial intelligence robotics just productivity increases if there's a private sector that can it's just it's a question of accounting like get the money to the retirees so they can pay the doctors that are there now if the doctors already have too much business and there's not enough doctors then you have inflation that's the constraint the constraint isn't the accounting and, and a great example so i used to have one of my clients as an institutional advisor, was a retirement home. And they had a $30 million portfolio. But they also had financial statements. So every year in their financial statements, they would have their fees that they collect. But a big portion was realized gains. And then they would have their expenses. So they had their wealth, which was their actual investments. But they had their financial statements. And I remember one year, the CFO came to me and said, we don't have enough gains because my financial statement shows we're losing money. Yet, their portfolio is up that year. And so I suggested, well, we could sell some stocks and realize the gains from an accounting perspective. And she's like, no, we can't churn the portfolio. But in fact, that's what she wanted. She wanted her accounting statement to look better fiscally when their wealth over here was their actual investment assets with a ton of unrealized gains. It's the same with... with this type of generational accounting. The, the balance sheet looks terrible. The government has always been insolvent because it always spends more money than it receives. The issue is the wealth. The wealth are the people and the households, the businesses. Will they be able to supply enough goods and services, including medical treatment, for the populace? We can take care of the accounting issues, getting the money from whatever other people but if we don't have the
0: capacity to produce, then we're in trouble. So for the sake of argument, let me grant your point. Let's pretend – let's assume that accounting doesn't matter because I I, I I concur with your point. Uh, somebody who has a failing business and mountains of debt isn't necessarily doomed to – Guaranteed bankruptcy. Well, especially they maybe, if they
1: can't create right, money either. Right? That's <laughs>
0: correct. Which is always the government has a monopoly on money creation and and on force to 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 extract tax revenue. But uh, so but let's go then back to a, a realistic accounting of the future because the. Those financial decisions are predicated upon the productivity of the sector, the the health of the economy, and I, I would dissent with your point that the government has always been insolvent. I the U.S. government, I don't see that in history. It seems as though there have been times of insolvency. You know, right after the Revolutionary War, the early U.S. American government inflated like crazy, and but it's gone through periods. But for the last, say, since the since nineteen early uh, first quarter of the twentieth century, there has been this continual trend towards increasing levels of debt, increasing promises. Et because it
1: loses money every year. I mean when I say right, insolvent, right.
0: I'm saying they're they're
1: Right. Like most right. businesses right. cannot lose money every single year. Right. I mean they're effectively insolvent and the government can, but it okay. by some definitions right, it right. would be insolvent. So now
0: let's talk about cultural capital. And and I'm so torn on these issues because on the one hand, I can't deny that Wall Street, for the sake of using a very collectivized term, Wall Street has been deeply productive with their assets. Wealth is growing. But I don't see the same strength reflected in the U.S. American culture. I see a very sick U.S. American culture. And I'm concerned with the idea that there is enough cultural capital to sustain through for decades. What, and so am I. What do you I'm, think? Oh,
1: exactly. I mean, that, that's my, and I've talked a lot about some of those issues on my show in terms of income inequality, just the state of education, just the state uh, of, of ethics. If people, because money is trust. Right. And if we don't, if we no longer have trust as a society, if we don't trust our neighbors, if we don't trust businesses, if we don't trust government, then you're right. We're in serious trouble. But what, what bugs me is the focus doesn't get put on that. It gets put on the government's balance sheet. And we get into this, we need to balance the budget. Why don't we focus, why don't we understand what money is? And understand, since we're no longer on the gold standard, right. that we can create as much money as we want. Why don't we make sure we have policies that assure that decades down the road, we ha- have a functioning private sector, a productive private sector, an educated private sector. That's what worries me, not accounting issues regarding how money's created, et cetera, because all the evidence shows to date that between the central bank and the US government, the money can be created. What's not clear is whether, hopefully the private sector will still function (laughs) in the decades down the road, but we can take it year by year and hopefully solve these issues but not get distracted by this sideshow of the national debt.
0: So where do you see reasons for optimism at the moment?
1: I am really excited by the... First off, I think people are fundamentally good. I mean, I've been traveling for three months, or I guess a month and a half now. And people are good, and they want good things. And a, and a lot of people are trying. And we certainly have problems, but I think, by and large, society are good people trying to do the best for their families. That's a positive. I think the flexibility, the freedom we still have to start businesses here. And we don't have people complain about red tape, but it's so much easier to start a business here in in Cuba where they've effectively outlawed any private business other than running a restaurant, running out a house, a room in your house driving a taxi right that, that's it here we have that flexibility i think the advances in in robotics and in artificial intelligence the ability our ability to produce goods and services is is growing dramatically now that that's creating potentially unemployment problems to where we might have everything we need but nobody has a job because we can create so much that's a potential issue. That again, that's an accounting issue. Again, how do we get money to the people? But if we have the goods and services, and that's what, then I'm optimistic about that.
0: So I'll give you my list, and then I'll ask for your list of what you're concerned about. My list uh, would be, number one, I'm encouraged by the decentralization of uh, information. I'm encouraged that now uh, a 10-year-old child in the poorest neighborhood or the Of the United States or even the world can access the the knowledge of the world through a $40 smartphone. And I'm deeply encouraged about that. I'm encouraged about uh, the decentralization of education and schooling. I think that uh, by the leader, for example, Salman Khan with the Khan Academy, I think that he is the uh, harbinger of just a massive change in education. Now, I don't I don't function I don't live in kind of mainstream circles, but I don't know a, I hardly know any young couples who are parents who are sending their children to government schools. Almost everybody is looking for other alternatives and I see that as a great opportunity for children to be trained and instead of being uh, stultified and dumbed down by the monopoly on edu- education, I see that as positive. I agree with you as far as the ability to start businesses. Uh, I still live in the United States of America simply because I don't know anywhere better. If there were better, I would, I would go, uh, but I don't know anywhere better. And it is much easier to start businesses and in, in the United States than, than that. Um, so I, I agree with you on those things, and I see that uh, that that it's still it's never been easier to meet the basic needs of a person or a family of shelter over their head, uh, of of food in their belly than it than it. It's never been easier than it is today, and I'm I'm very enthusiastic about some of the advances in being able to shelter and feed people using. Uh, uh, robotic and and ai technology to uh, grow crops locally within the city using very calculated computer controlled systems or to 3d print houses for people for five thousand dollars that are safe and comfortable and warm so i'm very motivated and and optimistic about those trends and just the increasing ability for individuals to connect with other individuals So i do see those things as positive what are you concerned about what trends do you see that that keep you up at night
1: i'm concerned about tribalism people breaking down into groups and one of the things i i I hate when when people say they should do this or they should do that as opposed to we should solve this together so the the strife the just how mad people get right it's not in politics for example it's not enough to disagree right they hate the other side
0: right
1: and and that that terrifies me it really does the the lack of ethics the the corporations that knowingly pass on costs to to innocent negative externalities and just lie i mean that 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 will destroy a country and so On one hand, I I go around and I think people are basically good, but I I think people get selfish, and they forget. They don't think about the consequences of some of their actions sometimes, particularly in in business. So, But I I think, generally speaking, things are better done on the local level, and I've talked about that on my show. I I worry about bureaucracy, big, big government, and things of that sort. I think there's some things because the government actually has the power to create money there's some things better for the government to finance but then have it implemented at the local level if if we get to the point where everything's created very easily for what we need but people don't have enough jobs then i think the solution is not to have the federal government hire a bunch of people but finance businesses give them grants to hire people to go visit the elderly or things like that i mean. But it needs to be done at the local level. But those are my concerns. I think it's just a lack of integrity concerns me. The breaking down into into tribes, income equality concerns me. when, When businesses, all they care about is profits so they don't pay their workers enough. And ultimately, they—they—and the, they sh- it shouldn't be the government mandates it. I'm saying, as a business, we shouldn't be short sighted. We should pay right. our people fairly. Now, it's hard to figure out. Business is hard. Yeah. It concerns me that businesses generally—it's easier to buy back stock, which is one of the things driving the stock market, correct? Right. As opposed to investing in the future and investing in their people. Again, there's always a balance, but it's easy—it's easier to buy back right. stock as a CEO. You you get the immediate impact, and you don't have the uncertainty of other areas. I mean, those are a few of my concerns. But generally, I'm optimistic, and I think these are issues we can solve.
0: I'll give you uh, just a few of mine. Obviously, this is not comprehensive, but a few of mine would be, uh, I agree with you, uh, I concur with you about the uh, lack of ethics. We've lost, as the United States of America moves into... What seems to be, under current understanding, what seems to be a post-Christian era, we've lost a common ability to talk about ethics, where we all affirm the existence of a moral standard, but we dissent about what moral standard there is. And so different people view things differently on discussion of something like minimum wage. right? You have two people. One person says, you must mandate a minimum wage because that's morally right. Another person, I would I would say, you must not mandate a minimum wage because that's morally wrong. Not that you shouldn't pay someone, but that, that a, it's a use of coercion and force. And so we, I see this continually as we've lost the ability to discuss things within Within a frame where we can find common understanding, and and we we lack a common uh, discussion of of, of ethics, and 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 I agree with that, yeah. And we and we don't teach ethics. We don't because of this concern. We don't teach formally ethics. I I went through. We we do in some places. I went through uh, when I was getting my master's degree in financial planning. One of the capstone courses was a discussion of ethics, and it was an it was drawn from an entirely. uh, secular perspective and the philosophy professor who was leading that, uh, that charge, I asked her, I said, what is the basis for these ethical issues? And how do you know what, it, what, it, what is right in the situation? What, what is right in this financial planning situation? What is right for this company? How do, you, where do you, how do you reason from this? And since there's no agreement on those first principles, the application of it becomes different. I'm concerned about uh, the—I agree with you about tribalism, and I see it as so dangerous because, especially in the United States of America, from my assessment, we've lost any kind of—we've lost a majority of our common cultural understanding. I don't feel almost any connection to somebody who is a U.S. American, just because somebody's an American— I don't feel any kind of national pride or national sense of identity with them. Um, I feel that sense of connection to people who are outside of that, but I often feel more culturally connected to somebody who shares more of my worldview, who's of another skin color from another continent, than I do of my neighbor, because there doesn't seem to be um, that historical uh, identity that's being passed on. And I don't know how a nation continues to function if it doesn't have a common heritage, a common creed that that is passed on from generation to generation. I've lost that myself. I, I feel very little connection to the um, neighbor, to my neighbors, and then increasingly there doesn't seem to be um, much outworking of that sense of community. Uh, those the communities are, are tend to be siloed and not geographic in nature, but ideological in nature. Uh, and without belaboring the point, it's hard for me to find a whole lot of examples where things are really flourishing, where people are really feeling good, where people are working towards common uh, common progress. I'm sure they exist. Just, oh, I think, hard for I me think to they find. do.
1: But I, th- I think the key is just go out and meet people. I mean, yeah, I'm sure you do it, right? But right, right. meet your neighbors, reach out, be human i do think as a as a nation we have a common set of values freedom, entrepreneurialism, et cetera. I, I think other nations I, do too, but I, I one of the things that does concern me is where America's the greatest country in the world is what politicians say. well, you know there's a lot of great places right, and there's a lot of amazingly good people everywhere, and we I just need to be kinder to the people. And connect more with people, and I think that's one thing the Internet has done, is is to allow sort of that common language, that common connectivity. And while we might have some of these these moral discussions, minimum wage, etc., if we get to the point where we just straight out steal, and that becomes accepted, that's well, I, the problem. But
0: it, we already are, and we, we, here's my argument. We already are there. So... Half of the population says those other people shouldn't have it, so we're going to take from them to give to these people. I call that theft. Now, it's theft by majority vote, but that is theft. And so w- certainly is it different than me going and pilfering the stapler from my off- my boss's office? in a sense, but at its fundamental basis, it's no different. So you talk about this heritage of freedom. I I don't see it. Maybe it's a generational thing, but I don't see a lot of people. I don't hear a lot of people talking about, I affirm your right to individual freedom. It feels to me, speaking very subjectively, it feels to me like a lot of people want to say, no, you don't have the freedom to do this. No, you don't have the freedom to do that. You want to start a business cutting hair? Yeah, you have to go and apply for a license. You want to go and move into this, comp- uh, this occupation? You need to go and ask for a license. You, it's, it's a constant stricture on freedom. So I, don't, I, I, I disagree and dissent. We don't have a common heritage of freedom. We talk about it. We talk about defending freedom, but there is no—I don't see the common heritage. But those,
1: those, are, those are issues on the margin. You can still, even if you have to get the license, we can talk about the the amount of regulation you need to, to
0: to cut people's hair. You can't do that in Cuba. You, you can you, do it until you get reported and until the government goons start knocking on your door and say, are you cutting hair illegally? I have been in meetings with people. When one lady, one was a client of mine. I, I don't know how she ended up as a client of mine. She was cutting hair in her living room in the inner city and and doing that until she got the knock on the door from the government goons saying, we heard that you're doing unauthorized business activities here. We're a lot closer to Cuba than we once were. <laughs> That's what I see. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, we probably are. And, that,
1: and that's, a, that's a different discussion in terms of how much regulation there should be. I right. mean, you and I have talked about your inability to have chickens here in, in Palm Beach County. Right. And, and <laughs> we can talk, you've talked about it on your show. But, yes, but those are issues regarding policy and the limits. At the end of the day, though, the, this theft that you discuss, again— the government can create the money, right? They're not really taking money from you and giving it to somebody else. They're taking money from us because we have taxes. Then the other hand is creating the money to spend. And we we have to come together in terms of how much should they spend and what they should spend it on and the amount of policy. But coming full circle, those are issues other than the accounting of what the national debt is. I think... That's sustainable for many years in the future, but we take it one year at
0: a time. So my closing question for you. Do you affirm that it's possible that there would be various forms of default bankruptcy and collapse uh, in coming decades? And if it were possible, what would you look for? I I would look
1: for just complete lack of honesty with our leaders it it, the government's been taken over by it be it the private businesses or whatever just you and you can tell it i mean i don't think we're there yet we we're still arguing about what the money should be spent on but we are a far cry from i'll give the example venezuela where the government is threatening their citizens that you have to vote for me or we will not give you your food stipend because they're starving We're not even close to that yet. And and for that, I'm fortunate. But we could get there, and that's why we all have to be involved as citizens in terms of who's elected. And at the local level, get involved locally and get out and meet our fellow citizens. And and don't just stay indoors in our gated communities.
0: So I affirm that. It could be. I could be wrong, and I hope that I am. We're certainly not in Venezuela, but I hope that all of us can work together to avoid <laughs> that fate. Thank you for coming on. Hey, it was fun. That was thirty-seven minutes. So here, here's. I'm gonna. I I turn the recorder back on because I just want to hear this. So, uh, um, we got that time pressure off. That the issue that I face, and I'm asking this sincerely as, is, as, is how, how old are you now? 53. Okay. So you're, so you're about 20 years older than I am, and you've been involved in a similar path as I have in terms of the financial world. I don't want to be a catastrophist or an alarmist. I don't want to, um, you know, scream that the sky is falling when the sky is not falling, which is why I'm very, I'm very sensitive to the people who make foolish decisions and, and, um, and say, well, you know, by twenty ten, <laughs> the world's going to collapse, and the the U.S. dollar is going to be worth. I think those those things are so overblown and overstable. Like yeah, the U.S. dollar selling a newsletter. Yeah, yeah. The U.S. dollar is the strongest currency in the world. Right? But I also don't want to just be a Pollyanna where everything is perfect, because I see throughout history a systematic ebb and flow of. Growth and decline, growth and decline. Empires collapse. They do collapse. And so just because somebody has said it will collapse and it hasn't yet doesn't mean that it's necessarily not going to collapse. And I think back to the question of freedom. I hear almost nobody advocating for freedom. I don't hear, and I know. Poli- I think political leaders are important because they reflect the population to the extent that anybody can reflect the population. I don't reflect the population. I'm a a voice crying in the wilderness, you know, just kind of saying what I think is right. But a po- politician needs to appeal to people's uh, to, to a, a larger branch to get elected. If 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 a democratic action works as it's supposed to, so a politician is going to reflect the the culture. Tell me who you here talking about and advocating for freedom as a fundamental principle of Ameri- U.S. American society? Well, I guess it depends on your definition for freedom. I, I think the you, you choose the definition. Just tell me who. Like, and I'm not... Sorry, I'm, I'm not being snarky with you, but you, I don't care about the definition, but what would you define as freedom? Or any definition you want, I guess.
1: The ability to get up and provide for my family. And go where I want to go. And within reason, do what I want to do without necessarily impeding or putting harm on others. I think we, we, we have that. And so I think it's more a question of degrees. Maybe we don't have as much freedom as we would like, and we can argue about laws and regulations, etc., but as I've traveled around the world, we, we have so much more freedom than we have plenty of freedom. Right. And I mean, you and I have talked about zoning issues, right? Right. Well, I mean, they're, governments overstep their bounds. Because, and I've seen this at the local level, right? At the local level, it's amazing how much influence you can have at the local level. To the extent that they've outlawed chickens in Palm Beach County, but they used to outlaw outlaw chickens in Rexburg Idaho well the citizens came together and said you know there's a lot more places in the US where you can have chickens in cities now than there were 20 years ago right because as citizens we decided we want that freedom at our local community to, to have fresh eggs and so I think that, I mean that's an example where freedom's gone the other way right despite where we are and and so I do that I just I don't feel constricted day to day in terms of what I can do. I really don't. You started radical personal finance. I started money for the rest of us. Nobody said you couldn't do that many places they would have. And, and so that, that's a freedom. That's, that's a huge freedom we have today that we didn't have 30 years ago. Everybody can create their own content, have their own radio station in terms of a podcast. That's a huge freedom.
0: So I, I affirm that the United States of America enjoys more of these freedoms than on most places in the world. I affirm that. As I've traveled, every time I leave the country, I'm just so thankful for the opportunities. Um, I think, and I, I've said this on the show many times. If, if you, and I probably it's been a while since I've been outside the borders. So maybe it's time to take my own advice. But if you're feeling um, down. Cast about your possibilities that you have in life, get on an airplane and go somewhere else, and you'll be thankful for your job. Uh, You know, my wife and I, on our honeymoon, we traveled to Haiti, and that's just off the shores of of Florida. Uh, I always come back from these places just thankful that I can have a job, that I can work, that I can do it. Because when you're in a world where uh, 75% of people can't even get a job, uh, who want a job, it's so broken that you're thankful for the ability to go and get any menial job whatsoever in the United States of America. And perhaps I am I am prone to thinking like an ideologue, but I just look at something as simple as work freedom, uh, as freedom. A majority, seemingly, a, a significant percentage of the population um, believes that it's I have a number of friends who are immigrants to the United States of America, and um, most of them, uh, with a couple, uh, from different countries, a couple of them are um, out of compliance status with the United States in terms of immigration law. Several of them are in compliance with the United States in terms of immigration law. But I am so frustrated at the, the idea that the U.S. government thinks that it has the moral authority and right to tell a person, no, you can't work. For uh, uh, no, you can't go and do honest, productive work to provide for your family because you haven't applied for the proper paperwork, or that the U.S. government would have the temerity to think that it can sp- to say to an employer, no, you have uh, the, you can't hire this person uh, because they don't have the appropriate visa requirements to do honest work that you need them to do. Now, maybe I'm in a... Now, that, I, I, what's, what's fascinating about that, right, because that,
1: that, I agree with you, and that, which is why this is a great conversation, that's
0: not a conservative position. No, no. And this is my frustration with, this is what I, I am fed up with, with <laughs> the political world, because it's like every about 50 years... The democrats and the republicans basically swap places and take each other's positions about every 50 years and that's what frustrates me because if if if, if there i've not heard of a republican uh, position i've not heard of a republican um uh maybe there are i haven't i don't hear a republican politician affirming somebody's right to work now flip it around let's just pick on the democrats so we pick on everybody and annoy every listener uh On the same hand, there are lots of Democrats and Democratic politicians who say, you should be able to hire somebody regardless of their immigration status, but we're going to require you, at the threat of force, to pay them $15 an hour whether the work that they're doing for you is worth $15 an hour or not. And so I deny both of those premises. Mm. I affirm the fact that any person should be able to make any other private contract with any other person, as long as the work is moral and ethical and legal, as long as those things are there, without interference. That's freedom. But I I, I I don't hear anybody affirming that. And so when you talk about freedom, yes, we do have freedom. But I look at it and say, is this not an inheritance from centuries of work? That, that are unique to the to the u s American experiment because the the, the 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 early colonists of the United States were desperately longing for freedom. they were seeking religious freedom and now I find myself as a religious minority with with much of my religious freedom diminished and what religious freedom I do enjoy banished to the idea of private practice as long as it's not public or as long as it has no effect on your actual life. And so I look at that and say, the, the heritage was freedom, but where is the continuing press towards freedom? I don't see it. All I see is a continual stricture. Now, compared to the rest of the world, absolutely, it's there. But I don't see that, that, that no, change. No, no, and
1: I, I agree with that. I, I think religious freedom, there's less of it than it was.
0: And I don't know. And so I I use this as as evidence for my position that this common, I don't think we don't speak a common understanding. Like we don't, we don't, I don't hear those common ideas reflected in U.S. American culture. I hear the platitudes of, you know, we live for freedom, fight for freedom, uh, etc. Uh, you know we all inherit the freedom that people have died for. I hear the platitudes, but i don 't see much of the results. Most of the freedom seems to me to be um Enlarged by individuals, but, but largely by individuals who, with technological changes, you know, there are tremendous freedoms. I, that's why I stated those things, like the, 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 the destruction of the monopoly on the press. I love that. I, I'm thrilled with it. Now, it's very uncomfortable, right? You got to deal with fake news and, and all this stuff, but it, but it's, it is a, a good thing for freedom. And I'm the in, for example, um, home education, uh, uh, just simple things. Like I was born, um, I was born at home. Uh, when I was born, in a time when home birth was not particularly officially sanctioned. I was uh, homeschooled at a time when home education was not officially sanctioned. It was very much a gray area. Whereas today, um, it's relatively easy for anybody who wants to take control of those things to do it. But I don't hear that common conversation. So I'm ranting and raving, and I don't know what my point is, so I'll let you say something (laughs) something smart. (laughs) Yeah. Get on the road
1: like you plan on doing right? (laughs) and and travel around and uh, come to Idaho. There's a lot of freedom out in Idaho. (laughs)
0: Indeed. Thanks, David. Thank you for listening. You've honored me with your time and attention, and I'm grateful for that. And I hope that I've effectively served you today with some ideas and strategies and tactics and techniques and tools that will help move you towards your goals. Before you go, three simple requests. One, if there's an idea that's been helpful to you in today's show, make a plan to take action on it. Listening does lead to learning, but learning in and of itself doesn't automatically lead to a life change. It's action that leads to a life change. So take action. Two, take something that was helpful to you in today's show and share it with somebody that you care about. I'm depending on you to be a co-laborer with me in helping me to propagate the message that I'm seeking to share. That helps the person that you are engaging with, and it also helps you because teaching others is one of the most effective ways for you to learn and for you to cement your learning. Three, if there's an idea that's been specifically helpful to you and if you're gaining financial benefit from radical personal finance, I'd be grateful if you'd consider paying me for this work voluntarily. Come by radicalpersonalfinance.com slash patron and you can sign up there to support the show at whatever level you feel is right for you. This is a voluntary support. That's my Patreon page. You can support me with a dollar a month, five dollars a month, ten dollars a month, any number that seems right to you. But if you're gaining financial benefit from this show, and if it's achieving financial results in your life, I'd be grateful for your financial support at radicalpersonalfinance.com/patron.